Romans 15, 7. Continuing in our distillation phase of Romans the Epistle, RTE by abbreviation, an expanded paraphrase. This might wrap it up tonight, 15.7. And let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. Father, it's been an astounding privilege to study this magnificent, inspired epistle from your chosen apostle, the apostle of Jesus Christ. We're grateful, Father, for another opportunity to gaze into the glory that shines from the face of Jesus and reflects out from the scriptures the word of God. We pray tonight as we present ourselves to you and entrust our spirits to you that you'll grant us attentiveness and receptivity and good ground to receive this good word of God. Once again, thank you, Father, for this astounding privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 15, 7. For this reason... And that refers back to 15.6, that your lives are to be a graced imitation of Christ the Messiah. For this reason, that your lives are to be a graced imitation of Christ the Messiah, receive one another. Just as Christ has received you for the glory and honor of God. This could be specifically the glory of God's grace by which we are accepted in his beloved son. If you want to confer with Ephesians 1 6, a lot of arrows are pointing in my heart here to Ephesians. Comment by this verse, Paul can almost say, I said all of this, Romans 1 1 to 15 6, to say this Receive one another accept one another in love just as Christ unconditionally received you for the glory of his father the God of all grace verse 8 for I say Paul says Christ became a minister of the circumcision or the Jew arrow back to Romans 1 16 the Jew first on behalf of the faithfulness of God, you'll notice the word truth is used there probably, but I translate it the faithfulness of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs. In verse 9a, I want to split this verse with a comment. And so that Gentiles, Romans 1.16 again in the thesis verses, the Greek and also the Jew first and also the Greek will glorify God for his mercy. So I say that Christ again, verse eight became a minister or a servant of the circumcision Israel on behalf of the faithfulness of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs. And so that Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy. This of course is the mercy that God shows to all in Romans eleven thirty two. Now I translated the word aletheia. Here, A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A, Aletheia, for as faithfulness, 
it usually means truth or reality. Both of those are appropriate. But I translated it as faithfulness to show that God is speaking here of God's unilateral promises to Israel, which depend entirely on his faithfulness and which find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. This is in accordance with understanding that the gospel reveals God's righteousness, arrow back to Romans 117, which is his universally saving action, which is from God's faithfulness or from faithfulness to faithfulness, from God's faithfulness to Christ's faithfulness, how I interpreted Romans 117. Aletheia means truth or reality, but it also means faithfulness or fidelity, and it is therefore synonymous with the word Pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S, for example, as it's used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we become faithless, he remains pistos, faithful, because he cannot deny himself. The reason for this is can be illustrated. Let's say a woman says to her fiancé, why can't you be true? I think there's even a song. It's a guy singing to a girl, though. Why can't you be? Maybe it's Susie Q. Susie Q. Why can't you be true? Someone, maybe one of those. I don't know. Aletheia then refers to this. When she says, why can't you be true to her fiancé, a wandering fiancé, it's as if she's saying, why can't you be faithful? The synonym there is reflected in that illustration. Why can't you be faithful? The idea is presented here is that God is true. That is faithful. Even if all of Israel and all the world is unfaithful. Let God be true even though everyone else is a liar or unfaithful. His promises to the patriarchs, that's generally understood as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This excuse the long comment, but it's for clarification. His promises to the patriarchs are unconditional because they're based on God's faithfulness, which was demonstrated climactically and eschatologically in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. By God's wise choice, therefore, his choice in infinite wisdom and omniscience, world redemption began with the Jew. It began with Israel and fanned out to the world and to the universe. In fact, it began in Jesus Christ, one and the only one faithful Jew. Specifically, in Christ crucified on a cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem and who was resurrected from the garden tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Jewish disciple of Jesus. The crucified and resurrected Messiah, Jesus, is the final affirmation and the confirmation of God's promises to the patriarchs. Now, those promises are all conflated 
in one promise to Abraham, a patriarch of Israel, and of all the nations, too. That promise was repeated to Isaac and Jacob, and it was that in Abraham's seed, that is, the Messiah himself, as Galatians 3.16 identifies him, all the nations would be blessed. By the same divine wisdom, redemption includes the Gentiles, therefore, and ultimately the universe. In fact, God saves all. The Jew first becomes last in the salvation because the Jew is temporarily set aside so that all the Gentiles come in and then all Israel will be saved. So God starts first with the Jew and then brings in the Gentiles, but he flip-flops it, brings in the Gentiles first and then the Jews. So the first will be the last. That's the fulfillment of a prophecy. So by the the same divine wisdom, redemption includes the Gentiles and ultimately the universe or every being in the heavens and the earth. The promise that contained all the promises is unconditional and its horizon universal. It depended not on Israel or the nations, but on God who is faithful and who demonstrated his faithfulness through the faithful obedience of the one man and the only mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Excuse this long comment, but it's important. The obedience was to the extent of death on the cross through which Jesus won the expiation of sins or the putting away of sins, followed by his resurrection from the dead for the justification of all of humanity and the blessedness of all the nations, including Israel. This is all what Paul means when he says Jesus became a minister of the circumcision on behalf of the faithfulness of God to make good on the promises God made to the patriarchs and so the Gentiles will glorify him for his mercy. So continuing the comment, the all-inclusiveness of the promise affirmed and fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah is celebrated now in a cascade of references from the Old Testament scriptures, which testify of the final glorious and celebratory unity of Israel together with all the nations. This glorious chorus of unity stresses the unity that already exists between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who have been urged by the apostle in 15.6 to glorify God together with one mouth. Universality of salvation joins with unity of Jews and Gentiles, which is to be demonstrated in an eschatological hymn of praise by every being that has breath, led by none other than Jesus, the life and breath-giving spirit himself. This forms a final powerful appeal for unity among the saints in Rome by Paul and an omnipotent and omnipresent appeal by the Holy Spirit to saints everywhere and in all times, including our own time and place. The gospel reveals the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ and announces that we can participate in Messiah's faithfulness by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
in what amounts to God-approved livingness in this world, even now during the clash of two aeons, and completely when the Lord comes in glory, when all of humanity becomes contemporaneous via bodily resurrection, and when all of creation is unshackled from its slavery to corruption. I found this necessary to do this long commentary. When I do the translation, which will be down the road sometime, it will be minus all these comments, so you can rejoice. 9b, the second half of Romans 15.9. As it is written, kathos gegraptai, as it is written, is a formula Paul uses, I mentioned before, 14 times. He actually uses it 16 times in Romans as he appeals to the scriptures. Therefore, I, this is Christ speaking in the first person, I, Christ, will acknowledge, and the word there is praise, if you go back to Romans 14, 11, I, Christ, will acknowledge you, Father, among the Gentiles, that's all the nations, and sing psalms. What a wonderful thing this is. Jesus God and man, the divine psalmist. Psalo is the word here. P-S-A-L-L-O. And that's simply the verbal form of the word psalm or psalms in the Greek. I will acknowledge you, Father, or praise you among the Gentiles and sing psalms. This is a quote from Second, First Samuel twenty-two fifty, and Psalm eighteen forty-nine. It's important to know that David wrote this originally, but this reveals that the Holy One, His royal descendant Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, is the one speaking by David's own tongue, by the Spirit. We understand this from Second Samuel twenty-three two. There is an inclusio here, therefore, at the end of the main body of the epistle where Paul makes his argument. In Romans 15, 9 through 12, he speaks of Jesus being the seed of David and the royal heir, and this is how it all began in Romans 1, 3, the Son of God who is also, according to human lineage, of the royal line of David and who was declared to be all along the divine Son of God. Divine Son of God refers to him as the Viceroy or the human and divine representative of God, the King of the universe. And again, so he says, let's look at it again with 9b. As it is written, therefore I, that's Jesus, will acknowledge you, Father, among the Gentiles, that is, with all the nations, and sing psalms. And again, verse 10, it, that is, the scripture says, rejoice, you Gentiles, otherwise known as the nations, with his people, Israel, his original people, Gentiles with Jews. The whole point Paul makes to bring together the Gentile and Jewish Christians in Rome. This is a quote of the Torah, specifically Deuteronomy 32.43 in the Septuagint. And again, he says, I love these Again and again and still again, you see a lot of this going on in Hebrews. And again, it, the scripture says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people, Israel. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, 
and let all the people groups praise him. Psalm 117.1 or Septuagint 116.1. And still again, verse 12, this is a cascade, a waterfall of the scriptures. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's David's father, Jesse, the root of Jesse, and that also is the heir to David's throne, will come. The one who rises, this speaks of the righteous one, all the way back in Romans 1.17, who lives by his faithfulness. The word rises means the one who is being resurrected from the dead to rule the nations. So, the root of Jesse, verse 12, this goes all the way back to Romans 1, 3, and 4, will arise to rule the nations. That's all the nations, including Israel. In him, the Gentiles, that's the Gentiles or the nations in their totality, will hope. And that's, again, Septuagint of Isaiah 11.10. Ephesians 1.12 speaks of the first Gentiles to hope in Christ. And that was a group of people to whom that epistle was written. So comment, and please excuse these lengthy comments. I find them necessary. Here is an inclusio for the main body of the epistle and for the entire case or argument that Paul makes for the gospel of God about his son. All of Romans really can boil down to this. The father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ of the human lineage of David, Romans 1, 3. He is both the divine root of Jesse, and to do that he has to be divine, David's father, and the everlasting human heir to David's throne because of his resurrection from the dead, preceded, of course, by his incarnation and death by which he is declared to be God's son, that resurrection, and God's divine and human viceroy. Astonishingly, this what hit me today like a ton of bricks. This finale of Romans, the main body of the epistle, correlates precisely with the final self-identification of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Seems we were there for a little while. 22.16 of Revelation says, I, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So Romans finds an amazing correlation with Revelation. All of Romans is a call to allegiance by the nations to God the King through his elect viceroy, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings as he's called not only in Revelation 19.16, but also in 1 Timothy 6.15. So Paul himself is the leading herald of the king as the king's willing imperial slave. That goes all the way back to Romans 1.1. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ. Paul proclaimed his king throughout Romans the epistle, as he also proclaimed him from Jerusalem to Illyricum, as we're going to see, 
which is a district across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. The last powerful catena, C-A-T-E-N-A, is another word for, a literary word for a cascade or waterfall of successive scripture verses. The last powerful catena of quotations from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms is comparable to Jesus' exposition in his resurrection body on the road to Emmaus and later when he was with a group of his disciples where he spoke from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms about himself. Luke 24, 26 to 27, and 44 to 45. And so it's striking here for its inclusion of Israel and the nations, Jews and Gentiles, are pictured eschatologically harmonizing in a joyful song of praise to God, led by none other than the Davidic Messiah, King of Israel, who is also the Savior and the uniter of the world of nations. This final waterfall of scriptures in a potent flow pictures Jews and Gentiles, not in a horizontal orientation of inordinate competition and unwise comparisons, but rather in a vertical finality, a oneness of vertical orientation to God in Christ. This culmination of the argument presented in Romans consists of the final knockdown of the wall that has been separating groups of Jews and Gentiles. By appealing to this finale of God's redemptive, rectifying, and reconciling will, in which there is a clear vision of unity, even of oneness, in answer to Jesus' prayer in John seventeen twenty one to 23, Paul urges the saints in Rome, whether Jews, Greco-Romans, slaves, free persons, male or female, to recognize their unity, indeed to recognize their union with Christ in God. Verse 13 ends the main body of Paul's argument in the epistle and presentation of the gospel. Now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up. And that's my prayer for all of you here tonight and all those who hear this. Completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing. And this goes back to Romans 1.16. All who believe... Jew first and also the Greek, so that you may overflow with a contagious hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, comment. Joy and peace in believing. All through Romans, Paul has made it clear that our justification is not rooted in or the cause by our believing but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But believing, or our personal faith ignited by the Holy Spirit, has tremendous value and privileges us beyond imagination. Joy and peace in believing, Romans 15, 13, takes us back to Romans 5, 1, where the saints, justified by the faithfulness of Christ, are urged to enjoy the peace with God that they now have. Peace that is Jesus, according to Ephesians 2.14. Believing, we experience in some observable shape and form 
the life and livingness of the messianic age. We experience the kingdom of God, even at the psychic sense level, through a psychic conversion. That's coming up in our doctrines to come. Which is, we experience, therefore, the kingdom of God, which is defined as righteousness, which is God's saving action in us, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Arrow back, Romans fourteen seventeen. This is what the Gospel of John also teaches throughout, something I did not see our first way through, but clarify now. The Gospel of John teaches the same thing. The alternative to believing, according to John and to Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.18, John 3.16, the alternative to believing is to perish. That is, not to go to hell, but to remain temporarily trapped in the present evil aeon under the tyranny of sin, spinning one's wheels in the nervous human energy of the Adamic ontology. Peace, by definition, is the very messianic livingness that is in Jesus. It is a higher integration of human living in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Being justified by Christ's faithfulness, we live by participation with his faithfulness. This actually becomes explicitly stated in Galatians 2.20, where Paul states, I was crucified with Christ and therefore justified, I would add, and I live in a created participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our justification is our instauration. Our crucifixion is our justification. I'll be explaining that in doctrines to come. Precisely because no one living can be justified. Psalm 143.2, quoted all the way back in Romans 3.20, which is the Septuagint of 142.2 of the Psalms, says literally, all flesh will not be justified in God's sight. The Son of God who loves me, loved me, says Paul, loves me, and you can say this too. The Son of God who loved me, loves me still with the same intensity of love that he showed when he gave himself for me on Mount Calvary. This faithfulness works by love. Galatians 5, 6. It is energized by God's love, and this is extremely important, and we'll hopefully bringing this up in doctrines to come. It is energized by God's love, and operates within the dynamic state of God's love in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 6 through 10, Romans eight thirty nine, from which we can never be severed. In the dynamic state of being in love in a total way, and without restrictions, we become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That is, in the perfection of, of love, Matthew five forty three to forty eight, compared with First John two five, he who keeps his word in him or her is the love of God perfected. This is rightly referred to as a graced imitation of God and a created participation in uncreated love. It is a dynamic and not a static state. 
of loving, not with our own love, but with the love of God that is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was unconditionally given to us, according to Romans 5, 5, arrow back. The church, which is Christ's body, therefore, is edified and added to only as the dynamic state of unrestricted and unconditional love prevails over all other dynamisms. Ephesians 4.16, arrows keep pointing there. Verse 14 now, back to the translation. Someday you'll have this paraphrase without all my comments in it. It's going to be much shorter. Verse 14 of Romans now begins a personal thing on Paul's part, but still just as important. Now I myself, Paul writes, am convinced about you, my siblings, that you are full of beneficence, that is, willing of good, filled up with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. This is very important to me because as a communicator of the word, I know that as I've been told by, I was told one day in an ambulance when I was in, my blood pressure was about 160 and I was in the worst pain of my life. I was told by the woman who was going to administer the pain medicine to me, oh, you're a pastor, I don't believe we need them. Thank you, I said, and then received the pain medication, which wasn't complete until she was out of my sight. And so for some reason, I unconditionally loved that poor woman after a hit of whatever it was they gave me. But I'm I'm just saying that because Paul is saying here, I know that you could instruct one another. I know that you could counsel one another, advise one another, encourage one another, and teach one another. But Paul says, in a very gentle way, I'm pulling rank here, though, and I thought I'd teach you what's been in this epistle. There is a place for the pastor-teacher. There is a place for the communicator ordained for that purpose. And in fact, Ephesians says that he has given us pastors and teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles until we all come in the unity of the faith to the measure of the stature that's reflected in Jesus Christ. So I think we're still needed. I think we're still needed. And so he says here gently, I'm convinced that you could teach and instruct one another. Nevertheless, pulling rank, as it were, I'm giving the sense here, I've written to you quite audaciously, boldly on some points, by way of a reminder through the grace that was given to me, verse 16, as a minister accountable to Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. All the way back to Romans eleven thirteen, he said he was the official apostle to the Gentiles. I wouldn't want that responsibility. To perform, he says, the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news of God. My purpose being that the offering of the Gentiles, now he's talking here about a priestly duty. The Levite priests taught, and that goes all the way back to Nehemiah 8.8. The the teaching priests brought the message. They translated the text of the scriptures into a language that the people could understand after 70 years of captivity, and they gave the sense. That's all that we're doing here. More, there's more to that than meets the eye, and I hope to bring up some things about it in the near future.
I'm currently reading a book that I find to be the most important book I could read as a pastor, and it has to do with critical realism in the interpretation of the word, what's needed in the communicator, and what has to happen in him. And it's by Ben F. Meyer, if I can remember right. I remember taking notes in it today. I don't remember the title of it, though. I think it's called something like Reality and Illusion in Biblical Scholarship, but I'll, I'll be bringing that later on. Now, as a minister accountable to Christ Jesus for the Gentiles, to perform the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news of God, my purpose being that the offering of the Gentiles, which he pictures himself here metaphorically as a priest offering the Gentiles, would be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, of course, that's the one who pours out the love of God in our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. Consequently, and I love this touch here, this closing touch, I have a reason to boast in Christ Jesus. Remember all we did on boasting in Jeremiah 9.23.24? I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus about the things that pertain to God. Verse 18, for my audacity does not extend to speaking of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring about the allegiance, obedience should be related to allegiance to a king here, of the Gentiles or the nations by word and act. By word and act, Paul means, verse 19, he qualifies the meaning, through powerful signs and wonders performed by the Spirit of God. Those accomplished that they accompanied Paul's ministry and preaching. As a result, he says, I have fully proclaimed the good news about the Christ in an ark, ARC, from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum. Illyricum is a district across the Adriatic Sea from Italy, it includes places in northern Europe, continental Europe. And so comment, the theme of boasting, so prevalent throughout Romans and indeed throughout Paul's epistles, here's some examples where the word boasting is used, Romans 217, 223, 327, 5, 2, 5, 3, 5, 11, 1 Corinthians 131, 2 Corinthians 10, 17 to 18, Galatians 6, 14, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that's only it's a theme anchored in key Old Testament passages, especially Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. This theme of boasting reaches a crescendo here as Paul boasts in Christ Jesus for his missionary success, which was extraordinary to say the least. Verse 20, Paul's personal here, personal notes, my ambition, and that means also my policy. My ambition, according to my policy, is to preach the gospel where Christ is not named so as not to build on another person's foundation. Another person being like Peter, Apollos, others. If you compare this to 2 Corinthians 10, 15 and following, you'll understand Paul's policy. Verse 21, instead, in accordance with what is written, it's always in accordance with what is written with Paul, isn't it? In accordance with what is written. Those who had no report of him will see, and those who have not heard 
will understand. Isaiah 52, 15. Verse 22, this is why I have been prevented so many times from coming to you. You know what he's saying here? I've been busy. I've been a little busy. Paul was a man who gave himself completely to his mission. He understood what it was, and he gave himself completely to it. Such a person always looks like they're on the way to somewhere else because they're fully engaged in their mission. We all have one. And sometimes we do it without knowing what it is. It has to do with function in the dynamic state of love, where we are. So this is why I've been prevented so many times from coming to you. I put in brackets here, I've been a little busy. But now I no longer have a place in any of these regions. Isn't that astonishing? In all those places, Paul has no more place. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? The foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Paul said, I have no place in any of these regions anymore. You can read into that what you want, but it's pretty profound. And since I've longed for many years to come to you, he says in verse 23b, 24, as I travel to Spain, that's where the barbarians are that he has. He uses gentle word because he knows that's how they're perceived by some of the Roman refined people. Spain. As I travel to Spain, I hope to see you in passing through and to be sent on my way there by you once I first enjoyed your company. Of course, he hopes they'll be unified by then. Verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem. This was a fateful decision by the apostle. But now I'm going to Jerusalem. Think of that. To minister to the saints. For the churches in Macedonia, he says in verse 26, the story is told in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and Achaia, Macedonia's northern Greece at the time, Achaia, southern Greece, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, verse 27, they were delighted to do it. Greeks collecting money for Jewish siblings in Christ. Paul did this for a particular reason, to show unity, always aiming for unity. Yes, he said, they were delighted to do it, but in fact, they owe them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual benefits of the Jews, that is the redemption that overflowed, then they're obligated to minister to the Jews materially. Consequently, verse 28, only when I have finished this task and safely delivered this fruit, fruit here is a word for funds, carpon, it means funds, monies, Romans 1.13. Only then will I leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul's travel plans, very simple. Going to Jerusalem first. He's in Corinth, as he writes, in a home of a saint named Gaius. The whole church met in his home. Must have been quite an estate. Paul's plans, I'm going to Jerusalem first. Fateful decision. Then, 
after they, I deliver this fantastic financial aid to the poor, the persecuted saints in Jerusalem that have been disfranchised, ostracized, as Hebrews talks about them. Then I'm going to go to Spain by way of you, verse 29. But even though I have to accomplish this task first, I know that when I come to you, it will be with the fullness, pleroma, of the blessedness of Christ. Comment necessary here. A significant part of Paul's mission involved his collection of financial aid for the persecuted believers in Judea and especially in Jerusalem. These had been effectively ostracized and disfranchised by believing in Christ, and therefore they became poor as a result. So this collection gathered from the churches in southern Greece, Achaia, and northern Greece. The churches in Philippi and Thessalonica were extremely generous. They would constitute a remarkable display of unity and love from a largely Gentile body of Christians to their beleaguered Jewish Christian siblings. Paul was unsure about its reception, how it would be received, though, because many of these Jewish Christians were zealous for the law and were more in tune with his opponent than with Paul, including at times James. In Galatians, Paul said, I saw James for a couple of minutes. I spent two weeks with Peter. I saw James. Yeah, in passing. But anyways... The apostles were human beings. It's amazing. They were just human beings. Paul was unsure about its reception. In fact, this great apostle and the imperial slave of our Lord Jesus actually laid his life down while intending this unity. He would never make it to Rome or to Spain. Nevertheless, the invisible universal mission of the Son And the universal mission of the Spirit, still ongoing right now, right here in your hearts and minds, continued on, continues still today, and will continue until all of humanity is saved and will have come to the knowledge of the truth and the reality that is embodied in Jesus. Verse 30, now I urge you, siblings, Brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, that you fight together with me in my arena by your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service For Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and find rest with you. The God of peace be with you all. Pantone, famous word here, like in Revelation 22, 21, Pantone. And also in 1624, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with them all. Let it be so, he says. A lot of people think, A lot of scholars I studied think that was the end of the epistle and 16 was written later or was a special cover letter that Paul sent along with it. But 
I'm going to ignore all that and just go with Romans 16. This is what it says. Let me introduce you to Phoebe, our sister, who will hand deliver this epistle to you and perform it before you. I added that in brackets because that was the sense. Phoebe was going to bring this epistle, and it's been observed, and I tend to agree, that she would perform it so that they would understand that Paul is not speaking in some places, that an opponent is speaking in some places, and she would be able to perform it as a drama, and I'm sure that would have been something to see. She is a minister. Please notice that. Diakonos, same word used for Jesus being a minister to the circumcision applied to this woman named Phoebe. She is a minister of the church in Cancria. Cancria is a port of Corinth. So Paul was in Corinth. He sent Phoebe along with an entourage to Rome. So welcome her in the Lord in a manner that is worthy of the saints and stand by to assist her in whatever things she may need for you. From you, rather. For she has been an agent of beneficence and benevolence to many, especially to me. Paul has a benefactor in Phoebe. Now, I use the word salute and greet interchangeably here in these next verses where the word salute. The reason I use salute is because Paul just talked about fighting with me in the arena. He uses military metaphors in Romans 6.13, the weapons of our warfare, the weapons, our bodies are weapons of righteousness, the agona, the arena of contention. And so when he greets these saints, it's not just give them my love, although that's in there. But I use the word salute and greet interchangeably. It's the same word. Aspazomai, I think, is the word. So he says in verse 3, salute Prisca and Achilla otherwise known as Achilla, the eagle, and Priscilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, verse 4, who laid down their neck. Please notice two people, one neck, a married couple whom God joined together and no one can pull asunder, who together, Paul says, risked their lives for me to save my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches Brackets, because of them, I'm still alive and was able to dictate this letter. So I'm thankful for Prisca and Aquila. Can't wait to meet them. Greet also. Please notice that Prisca is mentioned first. So Hannibal Lecter, Paul didn't hate women. Greet also the church. Verse 5 that meets in their home, the home of Prisca and Priscilla. Salute my beloved dear friend Epinatus, who is the first fruits or the first convert in Christ from the province of Asia. Verse 6, greet Maria, who has worked very hard for you. Verse 7, salute Andronicus and Junia, a married couple, my fellow countrymen and former cellmates in prison who are outstanding among the apostles and who were incorporated into Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urban. I always think of Blaze on this one, Blaze Urban. Salute Urban. Salute Blaze. 
our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved dear friend. Verse 10, greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greetings to those of the house church of Aristobulus. Give my loving greeting to Herodian, my fellow countryman. Greet those of Narcissus who are in the Lord. That's the house church of a man named Narcissus. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, twin women who have worked hard in the Lord. Salute Persis, the beloved, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Verse 13, salute Rufus, a choice one in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, verse 14, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, the brother, and the brothers and sisters that are with them, another church. Salute Philogus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ salute you. Now these salutations, comment, include names of Jewish and of Gentile Christians, of slaves and of prisoners, of people from the household of Herod and the Roman government, the household of Caesar, of free persons, of males and females, of rich and poor, of educated and uneducated. And so this keeps the accent on the inclusiveness of the gospel and the unity of the saints. He does this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13, Galatians three twenty six to 29, Ephesians 2, 13, through 3, 6, and Colossians three eleven Verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eyes open for those who cause dissensions and set traps contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. Turn away from them. For such dissemblers, in verse 18, do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ as imperial slaves. Paul implying here, unlike myself and others on my team, like Timothy, Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1. On the contrary, they are slaves to their own belly. And through smooth speech and flattery, they seduce the hearts of the unsuspecting and the inattentive. For the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to remain experienced with respect to that which is good, but innocent in that which is evil. Now the God of peace will break in pieces the adversary, literally Satanas, under your feet. The Lord will soon, he says again, break in pieces the adversary, Satana, under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Comment, very important one, I think, in Romans sixteen seventeen to 20. Paul, for the first time, discloses the invisible source of the divisiveness and factiousness among the saints in Rome. That being Satan, the adversary the sower of discord. Paul may also be obliquely unveiling the truth that his opponent is an agent of Satan. He unmasks his opponents as agents of Satan more explicitly elsewhere. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4 and 13-15. to 
Moreover, by using the violent image of breaking the adversary into pieces under the feet of the saints, Paul does three things. One, he refers to the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 of the crushing of the serpent's head under the heel of the seed of the woman. Two, he speaks of all the saints in Rome in unity under whose feet the adversary will soon be broken in pieces. Three, he refers to the fragmentation of the saints in Rome as having been caused by the Satan who himself will be fragmented by their unity. In this, he still remains unrelentingly true to his intention to bring about unity among the fragmented saints in Rome. Verse 21, Timothy gets special mention here as we have First and Second Timothy and Paul says there's nobody like him in Philippians 2.20 and 21. Timothy, my co-worker, salutes you. So do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen. Verse 22, a special note from the ghostwriter here. I, Tertius, salute you in the Lord. I'm the writer who took the dictation of this letter from Paul. Verse 23, Gaius, in whose home I, Paul, am a guest and who hosts the whole church in Corinth, salutes you. Erastus, the city manager, imagine that, and our brother Quartus, salute you. The word salute, again, is an appropriate as, as, as appropriate as greet and can be used interchangeably with greet, as I've done here above. The reason for this is given in the reference to the military metaphors used throughout this epistle and the references to the arena of contention or theater of war in which all the saints should be engaged. At least all those whom Paul names are so occupied. Verse 24, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then, of course, we did two messages on this in the addendum. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you, which means to make you among the authentically strong, back in Romans 15.1, by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery, kept silent for ages of time gone by, but is now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by all the nations. You can look at Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven for that one. Verse 27, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages to come. Amen. I'm going to miss this epistle. Final comment and tracks to run on. This mystery which is now made to be seen as the message of the Old Testament in toto, has to do with God's unstoppable determination to sum up, and that again is a very important word, ana, kephalaio. That's omicron and then omega-o. Ana, A-N-A, K-E-P-H-A-L. That means head. Laia'o, anakephaleo, bringing unto one under one head. 
This word anakephaliao, back in 13.9 of Romans, refers forward to Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. All things and all beings in all of time and history in Christ will be summed up. Anakephaliosis, therefore, I'm saying, is much more important and definitive a word for God's ultimate plan, even more so than the word we've discovered before, apokatastasis. More important, more definitive, and something that I think we're going to be looking at under a term which I call instauration. Blessed unity and salvific universality will be fully and finally realized when Christ comprises all things and all beings and when God the Father who is pleased to dwell in his Son will finally be pleased to dwell in all in all that is destined to be comprised of Jesus. Reality is Jesus. In him is all the fullness of uncreated reality called divinity, Colossians 2.9, and all of the fullness of redeemed created reality called the all things, tapanta, in Ephesians 1.10. Father, we thank you for the privilege of Romans. We pray that this truth that we've discovered, especially in the concentrated distillation phase, will be riveted and locked in to our hearts and guide our thinking. Bring Tetelestai phalanx into the dynamic state of love in which we are all in love in an unrestricted, unqualified, and total way, mostly in love with you. We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, through whom you have received maximum glory. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege of offering to you our